Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello, welcome to Showtime Boxing with Raymondson och Peterson. With Eric Raymondson, Kate, Kieran Peterson. And that is about as far as I dare to go with my first and not necessarily, although probably, last attempt to introduce the podcast in Icelandic. Complete, you'll notice, with arbitrary and retrospective application of the patronymic Icelandic naming convention there, Eric Raymondson. Yes, travel broadens the mind, Eric. And you and I are the living proof. <laughs> Me, I've just returned from several days exploring a volcanic island in the North Atlantic and, well, you crossed the state line into New Jersey. Yes, how impressed Dora would be with the both of us, don't you think? <laughs> wow, I was not ready for that start. I uh, You caught me off guard there, Kieran. I, I do not speak <laughs> fluent Icelandic, needless to oh. say. Uh, how about them fillies? Huh? <laughs> there you go. That's a language that I do speak. There you go. Well, welcome back from from Iceland. Did you, did you bump into Bjork while you were there? She's an Uber driver now. Very few people realize this, actually. Did she drive you around, personally? No. Oh. And she's also not an Uber driver. Very <laughs> in fact, don't have Uber in Iceland. Okay, I'm learning so very much. So, so, so no, I, I didn't, um, uh, I didn't bump into Björk, but I did bump into Ragnar Heider Grundel, who is another very famous Icelandic singer. Oh, that was someone's name. I thought you were clearing your throat. <laughs> well, you're not welcome in Iceland, obviously. <laughs> no, probably not. There are a lot of places I'm not welcome. Well, that's but weird. I am welcome in New Jersey. There we go. Anywhere <laughs> specifically in New Jersey, Eric? Why, yes, Kieran. I just, uh, this uh, this past weekend on Sunday, I went to Atlantic City. Uh, Bill Detloff and I took a little road trip to see our friend and former boss, Nigel Collins, get inducted into the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame. So nice. un- unlike your travels, mine are boxing related, and uh, so I feel it is uh, slightly less... Uh, inappropriate for me to expound upon them here on the podcast. Um, So yeah, Nigel was one of 19 inductees. Uh, There were eight fighters and 11 non-participants. I'm not going to list all the non-participants, but I will list the fighters. It was Bernard Hopkins, Roberto Duran, Iran Barkley, Mickey Ward, Virgil Hill, Tim Witherspoon, Kevin Watts, and John Brown. It was cool to see someone like John Brown have his yeah. moment in the sun. You know, he's he's the sort of fighter who makes it clear why these regional halls of fame are a good thing. Um, and it was also fun to have Barkley and Duran go in together. Uh, as N- Nigel noted that in his speech, he talked about that memorable snowy night in Atlantic City when the two of them fought each other. Um, I also noticed it was interesting how uh, at least two of the non-participant inductees, Bowie Fisher and Butch Lewis, uh, had had falling outs with Bernard. Uh, that was an interesting theme. There was a tiny bit of a uh, this is your life b-hop feel to the proceedings, um, which uh, which brings me around to uh, admitting to you and the listeners, I didn't see Bernard's induction speech. Um, and he- here's why. Basically... This wasn't Canastota. The The event was run with just a little less polish. Uh, and uh, Larry Hazard was tasked with introducing several of the inductees. And he apparently didn't get the memo about there being 19 of them and needing oh, to keep no. it moving. So, uh, yeah, Larry Hazard veered off topic, told a bunch of stories about himself. Um, and it wasn't just him. Some of the other speeches were longer than they should have been, although Hazard was the, the chief offender. So anyway, this thing was supposed to end at 9 o'clock. And at 9.30, there were still three inductions left, including Bernard. (laughs) And Bill and I had a long drive ahead of us, and we needed to work in the morning. So we made the call that it wasn't worth the risk of being there for a 45-minute 
Bernard Hopkins speech. Uh, wow. Now, I, I was told after the fact he clocked in around 25, but I still feel good about our decision. Uh, but that said, it, it was cool to see a lot of people from the fight game come out. These regional halls of fame are great for the fighters who aren't going to make it into the International Boxing Hall. Uh, and if you are ever in desperate need of something to depress you, go walk around the Claridge in Atlantic City. You'll lose your enthusiasm for life in a hurry. Where is the Claridge? I'm trying to even pick. Uh, trying to picture it. It's nowhere right. near the boardwalk, is it? It is. It's on the is boardwalk that... uh, right next to Bally's, but it is no longer an active casino. It's just a ah. hotel with lots of empty space and general sadness. Ah. <laughs> Yes. That's going to be the title of my autobiography, you know. <laughs> I will purchase it. <laughs> All right. Uh, maybe, by the way, did you bell drive yourselves or did you get an Uber and was the Uber driver Bjork? <laughs> nice, nice attempt to bring it back around, but uh, no, uh, we did not Uber. And uh, so therefore it follows that the Uber driver was not the Uber. Oh, well, never mind. Was she there? <laughs> no. Okay. All right. Better move on then. Yes. Um, and cover the rest of the podcast. Uh, we will be covering two weekends, not just one, but two weekends of fights on our home network as we look ahead to this coming Saturday's Showtime Championship Boxing card. And we look back at this past Friday's Showbox card. We also have some news to cover. Quite a lot. Quite a little bit. Mm-hmm. We'll open up the mailbag to answer our listener question. Um, but first, we're, uh, I tell you, as just following the theme already established here, we're changing things up a little bit here on this podcast. Yes, on recent episodes, we've had some great interviews. Uh, like Buddy McGurt a couple of weeks ago, Gordon Hall last week. We saved those interviews for the end of the podcast. It was kind of they've been kind of constructed like a boxing car, making our mm. way through chief supporting bites, throwing in a couple of swing fights along the way, <laughs> all building up to the main event. But not this time. No, we have a very short broadcast window. We've got to get that main event out the way fast. And so that's what we're going to do. We are going to come straight out of the blocks with the highlight of the podcast. Let's immediately bring in our special guest. Saturday, June 29th, Showtime Championship Boxing returns from the NRG Arena in Houston, Texas, where in the main event, Houston native Jamal Charlo defends his middleweight belt against Brandon Adams. If you check into Showtime Boxing's Facebook page and the Showtime Sports YouTube channel, you can see a great video in which Jamal talks about his hometown and what it means for him to be fighting there. But let's not just rely on what the video has to tell us. Let's ask the man himself, because Jamal Charlo is on the line. Jamal, thank you so much for joining the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Yeah, how you doing? Thank you for having me. Good. Hey, look, so let's get right to that very point. Um, This is your first fight in Houston in seven years. Uh, Back then, you were a 21-year-old kid fighting six-rounders, and now you're a main eventer headlining a Showtime card. What does it mean to you to headline back home at the Energy Arena? Um, I can honestly say I made it, you know, uh, made it to this level, made it to this point. I feel good about it. Um, I'm older, wiser, stronger. So, like, you know, uh, things are definitely going to be different this time around. Right. And and, and this isn't a, a six-rounder like uh, like last time. This is a, a major title fight against... Yeah, this is a real deal. Yeah, this is yeah. a real deal. Everything <laughs> on the line. Um, I put uh, Houston on my, on my back, and, you know, make sure I'll be able to do my job. Right. Um, but the, now the guy you're facing, a, a lot of people aren't giving Brandon Adams a chance here, maybe in small part because the latest season of The Contender, which he won, aired on Epics, and it seems not a lot of people were watching. I did watch, and yeah, it's only The Contender. I, I know the competition isn't elite, but Adams can fight. I, I'm curious how dangerous a challenger you consider him to be. Is he better than the odds suggest, or is this easy work for you? 
Oh no, he's better than the odds suggest. He's a he's a um he's a top contender. Uh, just because uh, a lot of people don't know him doesn't mean that he doesn't oppose a threat um onto me or my career or my legacy. Um, everything is on the line uh, for me right now. I have to go out there and perform at the best of my ability and be able to do everything that I said I was gonna do. Um, you know, with my family and my friends and everyone watching, uh, the pressure's on me. It's not on Adams. Um, mm-hmm. I'm defending my belt. He's he's uh he's coming in to, to try to win the belt. So the hunger is in his favor, and um, you know I'm 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 ready to shut down whatever game plan that he has to provide. Is is there a particular element to him that you're most wary of? The one one punch he's most dangerous with, or something about him talent wise that that stands out to watch out for? No, nah, I'm a fighter. I'm a fighter. So, okay. Uh, the best fighters in the world, they and the best the, the the best out there, they always make the best adjustments, and that's what I plan on doing. Um. He's a fighter, so he's going to come to fight. So there's nothing I can do about it. You know, we're going to fight. We're going to meet up in the middle of the ring and let the best man win. Uh, my game plan would be definitely uh, my game My game plan to prevail way more than his, and that's what I plan on doing, landing shots that I know he, that he can't take. So a lot of your fights do not go the distance. 21 of your 28 uh, pro opponents, you've stopped them. Um, how important is it for you, especially on your home stage, to not just beat Brandon Adams, but to do it in style, score the KO? Um, I'm a stylist. I'm real uh, flamboyant when it comes to my style and the way that I possess myself to be. I don't plan on slowing down. I'm 29 years old. I feel great. I'm in the prime of my career. Um, I've seen this level before. I've been here before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't want to say that I'm gonna knock him out, or that's what I plan on doing. But if he makes the wrong move and um. That would be the decision that cost him um, the fight. Now, I, I know that, you know, looking beyond this fight, just, you know, big big picture, you want to prove yourself against the best in the middleweight division. Unfortunately, the biggest names are with different promoters fighting on a different network. What's it going to take for you to get Canelo or Golovkin in the ring? Can you see one of those fights happening, say, in 2020? Um, it could happen if they really want to fight me, you know, um, that's the that's the thing about it. Those guys uh, gotta want to fight me, and uh, right. being with a promoter and being with a networks and things like that. That's of the new the new school. I'm part of the old school where the best fight the best. And um, like like I said, if those guys really want to put up and fight me, that's something that that happen. But the way it's looking, they they um they hide behind networks and they hide behind uh, promoters and let the promoters talk for them. And then when we do finally meet up, you know, it's it's the outing that they never thought would be coming. So is it just up to you? Basically, you just got to keep on doing your thing and kind of force them into that position where they have to fight you. Well, well, really, um, what only, only way I think I'll be able to get a fight with one of those guys is do something that I definitely don't want to do. Um, but like I said, I just really want to meet him in the center of the ring and uh, see who's the most talented fighter. Uh, it, it has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with uh, any any um, you know other accolades. You know, I'm the WBC interim champion. That sounds good, but that's not something I'm really focused on. My mm. mental is really focused on being the best fighter that I can best possibly be, and mm. and beating the best fighters out there. And um, like I said, for me to get in the ring with Gennady Golovkin or uh, Canelo Alvarez, it's gonna take me 
to be on the downside of everything, and I'm mm. willing to do that. I'm willing to fight Gennady Golovkin in Kazakhstan. I'm willing to go fight uh, Canelo in, in Mexico City or Guadalajara, wherever he's from. Um, I'm willing to do the things that they want me to do to get in the ring with them. But um, if they try to hide behind a promoter and, and paperwork, then things make it a lot more difficult. But that's mm -hmm. not something I'm into. I'm a fighter. I'm not a promoter. Um, I have my own promotions, but I'm not here to, I'm not a referee. I'm not a judge. You know, um, you know, I have my, my professional degree in fighting and that's what I'm here to do. And, you know, talk about proving yourself against other fighters. Your fifth round KO win over Julian J. Rock Williams, uh, was really impressive at the time. It looks even better now given what he's done since. Um, did his performance against Jarrett Hurd surprise you at all, or did you think he had that in him? Nah, I make fighters better. You huh. know, um, I humbled him. Um, he, he came into the fight with a different mind frame. He gave me a different mind frame. You know, uh, a lot of fights start off like that. They think it's going to be easy, but until they get it, actually get in there with me and, 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 and feel my physical ability. Um, he's doing great now. He's bounced back. Uh, like the fighter that he said he would, you know, become, he became that fighter. He just wasn't going to become that fighter that night. Mm. You know, it was a different, it was a different story, a different atmosphere. I'm proud of him. That's my son. <laughs> it almost sounds like you were, uh, you're, you're, you're wanting him to call you daddy then. And I mean, there was a lot of trash talk. Is, is that still going on or, or is the bad blood gone now between you and J-Rock? No, nah, you know, there's no bad blood. He never has to speak to me a day in his life, but I'm going to be a fighter that he always remembers. Just put it like that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, no, nah, I don't want him to call me daddy. That's what my wife do. I, I, I want <laughs> I, I, When I say that's my son, I taught him a lesson. And that's just mm. my uh, lingo from Houston where I'm from. I sunned him. Gotcha. Right. Okay. I raised him. I raised him. You get it? I made him better. Right. I made right. him able to eat better. I made him. Yeah, you get it. Right. Yeah. Right. And and he, I guess, seems to be one of those fighters who maybe needed a loss to get to to take himself to that next right, level. Right. Right. I taught him a lie. I taught discipline him. That's mm -hmm. my son. <laughs> right. So so now that he has come back from that defeat uh, and and uh, gotten himself back to the top level, do you think we could at some point see a rematch with you and J Rock? I would definitely rematch him again. Um, some fighters don't learn their lessons, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. some kids, you know, get taught differently. Uh, Roy Jones and Bernard Hopkins fought each other early in their career right? and they did it again, you know, later on in their career. Um, seeing that he's a better fighter, what you think I became? Right. I'm a better teacher. There you go. Mm -hmm. So he was actually, you know, he was he was doing okay in there until you nailed him with that uppercut, which really was the beginning of the end. And I, I've got well, that's what it looked like. That's what it looked okay. like on the outside. You know, I was doing exactly what we planned on doing, letting him get closer. If you watch the fight over again, you would see he used a lot of feet, he used a lot of uh, angles, and he he did a lot of unnecessary movement, mm. and it cost him. And that's the thing about it. Like a lot of people say, oh yeah, he was doing good. He wasn't winning the fight. Mm. He was doing better than him looking when he got knocked out. Right, right. He lasted up until he got knocked out. So obviously I've done exactly what I wanted to do. Right. But that, I mean, you do, I mean, you've got like an arsenal, but it feels like your money punch is being able to steer people into that uppercut. That's not the only time you've really hurt somebody with that punch. Do you, do you feel that you've got one of the best uppercuts in boxing right now? 
I have the best jab in boxing right now. Okay. Hmm. The, the way I use my punches are different according to the 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 um techniques that my opponent possess. Now, every fight is different. So sometimes the uppercut have have a lot more flame to it, but it's one of my most natural punches. Mm. And it's a punch that's hard to get away from. It's a punch that I'd rather use on a top fighter like Canelo Alvarez or Gennady Golovkin to see how can they uh how, what they'll do about the uppercut, you know, uh, what's their game plan or, or whatever. But I like when fighters get to thinking that that's all I have is the uppercut. Then I have a Got lot yeah. more to show them. Got yeah. Um, all right. It, it feels like you're, 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 you're warming up into the interview now, which is good. Cause I have been, no, I've been I'm not, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you're so, uh, so this is a question that I've, uh, I've been wanting to ask you. Uh, I, I hope I don't offend you with it. Uh, I mean, no offense. No, bring it to me. Okay. So I've been covering you and your brother for years. I've covered fights of yours live. I've covered fights of his live. I've spoken to both of you, sat in fighter meetings with both of you. And I still can't always remember which one is Jamal and which one is Jermel without looking it up. I know you're different people. You fight in different divisions, different fighting styles, personalities, different tattoos. So maybe this is on me. But help me out. Can you give me a good way to remember who's who to separate you guys in my mind? Uh, the best way to remember that uh, the difference between me and my twin brother is that I'm a 160-pound interim WBC world champion, <laughs> former 154-pound uh, IBF world champion, defended the belt three times against whoever they wanted me to defend it against, never dodged nobody. Jamal Charlo, I'm the older twin by a minute. Um, <laughs> I give you everything you want. <laughs> okay, so but you promise you and Jermel will stay in different divisions so I can, so I can uh, keep separating you in my mind that way at least? It's definitely not a promise because I don't like <laughs> to promise anything, but... Okay. Uh, I can almost I can almost tell you that we would never fight each other no matter what division I'm we sure. we are in. Right. And we probably make history double time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um talking off Jamel, look, it's really tough for a brother to watch another brother lose. I know how enraged Vitaly Klitschko was when Vladimir lost. Um you not only had to watch your brother lose, but lose by a really controversial decision. And then you had to go right out and fight against a tough opponent yourself. How challenging was that to sort of stay focused on what you had to do and not worry about what had happened to Jermel? Um, it was almost my biggest challenge up to uh, up to date. Uh, uh. Watching my twin brother uh, take a, I, I almost needed to say that you know I, I needed about ten minutes just to process it. Mm. Um, ten minutes to shake it out. Ten minutes to warm up. A good like thirty minutes to just knock it off, knock it out of my mind. Um, it definitely, it definitely affected me to get right in the ring um, and get right back to work. I definitely didn't uh, get get to myself and get in my bag until about three to four rounds. Um, I rewatched the fight. I wasn't, I wasn't feeling too good in the beginning, mm. um, but knowing that I was in the fight, I, I kind of came to my senses. Um, but I know that's a fight that a lot of people thought that uh, Korobov done more than enough to um, make me not look as well in that fight. So that's the reason I trained so hard to prepare for this fight and and get it out the way. You know, uh, it was a learning lesson for me. Um, it was a learning lesson for the promoters. It's a, it a learning lesson for the network that um, it's a lot more difficult to watch my twin brother fight right before me and definitely mm -hmm. not get the decision that I think he should have. But, you know, I weathered it. I pulled the win off. Um, I felt good doing it. I feel good talking about it. 
um, it's just a stepping stone in my life right now. You know, it's, it's a part of my uh, legacy. Got right. It. Okay, uh, last question for you here, Jamal. Uh, th- this has been great, but I got w- one more for you here. You and Jamel have the lions-only thing, and the commercial for this fight is built around lions and the king of the jungle and all that. When and how did the fascination with lions begin? What- what's the story behind that? Um, I was in the living room one day, and um, I was um, watching the Discovery Channel, and I was looking at some crazy stuff like um it was a lion and he was out by himself and then he met up with a pack of lions um and he was a weak looking lion he didn't have the ability to to survive looking lion and uh that lion became attacked by other lions Hmm. but it was only because the lion looked at like he could have been some type of prey that he prevailed and and it made me feel like you know lions only because they allowed that lion to become a part of their circle mm. and i got a group of friends that i i can um relate to as one of those lions that they didn't look like uh it probably was about amounts to anything but as that lion showed the same heart and the same ferocious ability to go out and hunt and bring food back to the table, and we all survived together. It made me come up with lions only, mm. because that lion became a, that weary lion became a part of lions only, and they all gained and went hunt together, and they all became family. And and later on, that weary lion became the king of the jungle. Wow. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's great stuff. Now, now, Kieran and I ha- have a goal to build ourselves up to be t- to the point where we're welcomed into the circle of lions. There you go. <laughs> right. We have a long way to go. Right. <laughs> exactly. You just gotta stay focused and and don't let uh don't let nothing like wear you down. No matter if it's a big pack of lions, just stay on your ground and um you can survive out there if you if you if you leave out any doubt. There you go. All right, man, look, you're a great fighter, and you might be an even better interview. That was fantastic, Jamal Charlo. I really do appreciate you joining us, and all the best for you with your homecoming bout against Brandon Adams on Showtime. Thanks so much, champ. Hey, thank you. Okay, that was fun. That was great. Um, I love the way he sort of built up and really got into that. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, to Jamel Charlo. And uh, thanks also, Jamel, for not outright dismissing us from possible inclusion in the Circle of Lions. <laughs> he didn't seem enthusiastic, but he didn't dismiss it. Right. Um, I might, I emphasize, might merit inclusion in the Circle of Kitty Cats. Um, although I'm very allergic to cats, so I guess I wouldn't last long in that circle. I'm trying to think of the right docile I'm animal I'm really glad for us. you didn't bring that when we were talking to Jamal. That would have been the end of the whole circle of lions right probably, there. Probably. Probably so. Uh, let's hope he isn't st- still listening back. Um, but, you know, I, I, I was trying to think of what the what the animal that, that we belong in that circle. Like, I feel like lamb is too obvious as the traditional opposite of a lion, kind of. Um I'd say I have a fair amount in common with a turtle these days. So I say we start a club, turtles only, and only our oldest, slowest, most washed guests qualify for the circle of turtles. What do you think? Well, the problem there, and I'm possibly taking the podcast in a place where we don't want it to go, but that's already (laughs) happened, really. (laughs) Right. It's that 
ever since, and this isn't turtle specifically, it's tortoises, but ever since David Graceman, Michael Gluckstadt, and oh, I... Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. There's a corner of YouTube, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> that involves tortoises. All right, never... Yeah, all right, never mind. Not, not, not turtles only. I'll keep thinking on it. We'll come up with something. All right. <laughs> okay, boy, we better move on. Um, uh, so we've heard what Jamal Charlo had to say about his fight against Brandon Adams. This Saturday, June 29th at 9 p.m. Eastern on Showtime. But really, what what does an undefeated middleweight contender know about a Showtime main <laughs> event in which he's fighting? Far better to focus instead on what Eric and I think about it. So mm. uh, let's take an indulgent dive now ourselves and have a look at this fight. And let's start by talking a bit about the challenger. Um, uh, look, as you said, Eric, you watched this latest season of The Contender. I didn't. Um, give us the cliff notes on Brandon Adams' path to victory on the show and how he looked, the kind of fighter he is. And what sort of threat, if any, he poses to Charlie? All right. So if you watched the first season or two of The Contender, you know, way back in the mid 2000s, you know what the show is. Uh, It lives up to its name. The winner is a legit contender. And maybe the show finds a couple of other contenders along the way. But this isn't the Super Six or the World Boxing Super Series. The tournament isn't going to reveal who's the best in the division. So Brandon Adams, who prior to this had made the finals of two ESPN Boxino tournaments and lost both in the finals. Those are the two losses on his 21 and two record. Uh, And then he was out of the sport for three years before coming back to compete on the contender. He had a a relatively tough path in this contender tournament. Uh, Tyrone Brunson in the first round wasn't so hard, but uh, Evgen Kaitroff, who uh, came up on Showbox, was considered maybe the favorite coming into the tournament, and Adams beat him handily in the quarterfinals. Uh, and then Eric Walker, who was little known but can really fight, uh, Adams beat him in the semifinals. And then Adams got Shane Mosley Jr. in the finals and won every round. It was kind of a mismatch. Um, but you came out of the whole thing with a feeling similar to Sergio Mora winning the first season of The Contender, that the right guy won, this guy can fight, He's a contender. I don't know if he'll be a major title holder, but he can at least compete with some of the guys in the lower half of the middleweight top 10. Um, So a a bit more uh, about Adams. He's uh, with his longtime trainer, Dub Huntley, and also his new co-trainer, Freddie Roach, uh, who he worked with on the contender. Um, So he now has both of those guys in his corner. He's a skilled athletic boxer. Not a great puncher, maybe a B-minus puncher or something like that. He's in his physical prime at 29. Uh, He was only 25 when he disappeared from the sport in 2015. Mm. He's a solid opponent for most guys in the middleweight division. Jamal Charlo isn't most guys, though. Yeah. Um, you know, Adams against, say, Ryutu Murata or Machit Suletsky, those are competitive fights. Um, I would favor Adams for sure over a guy like Steve Rolls, uh, and I'd probably favor him over a Gabe Rosado. But when you're talking about the most talented guys in the division, it's a big leap. So uh, I'm, I'm tipping my prediction a bit here, but I'll just say it's hard to see him posing much of a threat to Jamal Charlo. Um, so let, let's zoom in a little on Charlo. Uh, he talked with us about getting off to a slow start against Korobov because of the unusual circumstance of fighting minutes after his twin brother suffered his first loss. He'll have a different kind of distraction here, fighting at home. There's pressure to perform. There's the potential for him to overlook Adams. Does this have the makings of a second consecutive uneven performance for Charlo? So nine times out of ten, if you ask a fighter, you know, what's it going to be like fighting at a particular venue and 
um, or, you know, coming home or being on this big stage, you know, they might say, oh, it's great to be home. They may say it's, it's, it's exciting to be at Madison Square Garden. But at some stage, their answer will include some variation along the lines of at the end of the day, a ring is just a ring. It doesn't right. matter where we fight. It's just me and him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera which is true, of course. But, you know, in these circumstances, it isn't what happens in the ring that's the issue. If, 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 some, if a fighter's going to be put off by fighting in a particular location, be it on a big stage or in his hometown, that damage will have happened way before he gets in the ring, generally, you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's especially with hometowns, it's everything that weighs on a fighter in the build-up. You know, he can't get training in as much as he'd like to because he's got to do with extra media here and there or extra events here and there or he's constantly getting bombarded by ticket requests from family or friends and they want to, you know, be involved in the build-up or, you know, maybe over the course if he's back home before the fight, he's seeing all the posters and all the commercials and all the news items and that's starting to settle into his head a little bit. But we don't even have to go far for a case of a homecoming not working out very well. I mean, you know, consider Jarrett Hurd's bout against uh, J-Rock Williams six mm. weeks or so ago. Um, is there a likelihood that that will happen to Charlo too? Um, I guess that depends on what we mean by, you know, by, by what happened. Is, is it, do we mean, is there a danger of him freezing on the homecoming stage and letting the occasion get to him? I mean... I don't know that that's actually what happened to Hurd. That probably had more to do with the fact that he was a cruiserweight fighting at 154 pounds, (laughs) and it finally caught up to him on a night that Williams just fought out of his skin. Um, And I don't think that's likely to happen to Charlo. He just doesn't seem to me to be the kind of person who really gets sort of overwhelmed by anything. And I mean, you mentioned, you know, what he told us just now about the Matt Korobov situation. Now that's excusable, right? And that's an entirely unique circumstance that happened immediately before he got in the ring. And it took him a few rounds to get it out of his system. And then he did get it out of his system. But even though there's been a lot of talk about him going back to Houston, and even though clearly from what he was saying to us, he's excited by it. I think he's the kind of guy who would rise to it rather than let it overwhelm him. The the flip side, of course, and you touched on this as well, setting this up, is that you can try too hard Hmm. in front of your hometown crowd and and you try to look too impressive and that gets you in trouble. Could I see that happening? Perhaps. Maybe he wants to really put on a show. Uh, Maybe he wants to look really good and takes a little while to settle down. But again, following you and tipping my hand a little bit, I think even if he does that, that's not going to affect the outcome particularly. It it might make him look a little bit sloppier early on and, and not as impressive. But I don't know. He just seems to me – my only personal experience with him is that interview that we just did with him. But okay. from watching him on TV and watching him fight and watching him talk, he seems a very, um, you know, very confident – you know, sort of self-possessed kind of individual. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who lets a lot of external stuff get to him uh, unduly. I, I don't see this necessarily being a distraction for him. Right. Um, so we talked about um, Canelo and Golovkin with Jamal, and that's really what set him off. Um, <laughs> took him from, from first gear to about 12. <laughs> um, so where does he fit into this middleweight division? And And... What fight? Let's assume that Canelo and Triple G are out of reach for him right now right. because of all the politics and because of everything else. That being the case, what fights would most interest you for him right now? So, the top five in the middleweight division, in terms of talent, uh, not necessarily how they should be ranked on accomplishment exactly, but in terms of talent, in some order, it's Canelo, Triple G, Charlo. Demetrius Andrade and Daniel Jacobs. I think most people would agree on that. Unfortunately for Charlo. All of the other four are doing their business on the DAZN side of the street at the moment. 
if Jacobs can be lured over to the PBC side for a fight, I think that's a perfect test yeah. for Charlo. That's going to tell us where he stands relative to Canelo and Golovkin. You know, is he on their level or not? We would find out based on how he does against Jacobs. And they had that famous incident in 2018 in Brooklyn, jawing with each other. And uh, then they got into it on social media where uh, Danny called Jamal Simba. Uh, different different Oof. sort of spin on the, uh, the Lions only <laughs> attack. Um, if Charlo beats Adams... I think the time is right to make Charlo Jacobs if the promotional politics can be worked out. Mm. Otherwise, you're talking about solid guys like Sergei Derevyanchenko, Rob Brandt, that level. They don't move the needle in the same way. Uh, it's like you said to Jamal. His job is to keep winning. You, you build your name and your fan base, and eventually the bigger fights will come. Yeah. Uh, now, looking down this uh, televised card, like the main event, the co-featured bout has a clear A-side. It's 154-pounder Erickson Lubin, whose only loss came against Jermel Charlo. Uh, he's fighting for the second time this year, attempting to build on his third-round stoppage win over Ishe Smith, as he takes on Zachariah Atu of Paris, France. Atu is 37 years old, and his record isn't much to look at. 29-6-2 with just seven knockouts. On the bright side, he's on a seven-fight winning streak and hasn't lost in more than four years. So, Kieran, is this a fight where Lubin needs to make a statement and be dominant, where just getting the W isn't enough if it's dull or, or goes a bunch of rounds? Yeah, 100%. And, and some of that has to do with timing, because those around him are laying down markers right now. Um, you know, we'll talk shortly about Jamel Charlo's KO win over the weekend, and we already mentioned uh, J-Rock Williams looking really good in, mm. in that terrific fight with, against Jarrett Hurd. Um, and those are the guys that he needs to be measuring himself up against and whom he wants to equal a better. And and whereas they're entrenched at the at the top of the rankings, he wants to get back up there. Um, he, he was closing in on it. But look, even though anyone can get caught early in a fight... Um, he did. That is what happened to him against Jamel. And that knocked him down the rankings and he needs to get back to the top. And that isn't going to happen if he turns in a less impressive performance than those guys against an opponent who, as you alluded to, at least on paper, does not appear to be of the same quality uh, of him. Um, you know, he does actually have a little bit of, of, of you know, something to go for here and the you know some of the others who are sort of top 10-ish in that division are treading water a little bit you know Aris Landy Lauren Brian Castaño drew with each other of course although that was a terrific fight mm -hmm. Jaime Munguia looked last time out as if his physicality is only going to take him so far so there's an opening here for him to get himself right back in the mix especially after looking as you said so impressive against Ishe being the first guy to stop him retiring him um, and also showing that he has a tremendous sideline as a fight prognosticator. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but but no, there's there's an opening here and he needs to take it. And he absolutely he he can't he winning isn't enough here. Uh, you know, he, obviously he needs to win, but he needs to win well, I think, on Saturday night. Yep. Um, so the opening bout of this triple header is in the featherweight division as Eduardo Zordito Ramirez, last seen on March 2nd at Barclays Center, scoring a ninth round TKO over Brian de Gracia on Showtime, takes on Claudio Marrero of the Dominican Republic. And so on paper, this is certainly the most even fight of the three televised bouts. Marrero is 23-3 and three with 17 KOs. Ramirez is 22-1-3 and three 
with nine KOs. Uh, what do you recall of Ramirez from that victory on Showtime in March? So, yeah, a refresher for those who forgot the fight. It was basically even through eight rounds. And then Ramirez, uh, a slick southpaw who wasn't believed to be the puncher coming into the fight, hurt Degracia in the ninth. And Benji Estevez called what I considered a slightly quick stoppage with Degracia still on his feet. It was a good win for Ramirez, not a conclusive win, but I was generally impressed with him. Uh, when he was locked in, he was a really slick dude mixing offense and defense, but he was inconsistent. Uh, he, he couldn't stay locked in round after round. So this is a, another test for Ramirez around that same level. Marrero, also a southpaw. His last two fights kind of tell the story with him. Uh, two fights ago, he took on undefeated Jorge Lara and stopped him in 33 seconds. It was a stunning counter left hand of the chin that Lara leaned into, and it, it produced three knockdowns with a single punch, kind of a uh, Tyson Burbick effect there. <laughs> um, but then in his next fight, Marrero faced another undefeated fighter, uh, Tug Nyambear, in January in Brooklyn, and he lost a close 12-round unanimous decision. Uh he can punch, he can box a bit, he likes to rumble. I think this has the makings of a really good fight, a, a possible show stealer. All right. All right, it's time to make some predictions. Uh, but first, a reminder that you too can make your picks on all three of these fights uh, and win cash and prizes thanks to DraftKings with the Showtime Boxing Pick'em Game. I did pretty well last week, finished in 236th place, which sounds nice. mediocre, I realize. That's kind of not such a great sounding number, but that was out of thousands of entries, so eh, not too shabby. Uh, in any case, we all get another chance this week. Just go to DraftKings.com Showtime, and for Charlo versus Adams and both undercard bouts, you pick a winner, a method of victory. If you're picking a knockout, you specify a range of rounds. And if you run the table, you win your share of $5,000 and a Showtime swag bag. And there's also a season-long grand prize of a trip to every 2020 Showtime Championship boxing event. Again, go to DraftKings.com Showtime to play. Nice. Yeah, that's not too bad at all. Although, of course, it's very low stakes compared to our uh, $1 prediction competition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, but we each scored two points toward that uh, last week. Uh, you still lead, 46 points to 41. Um, and you are picking first for the main event this time, Jamal Chalo against Brandon Adams. So I think I have more respect for Adams than the average boxing observer. Uh, I think he's a better, more mature, more well-rounded fighter now than he was when he lost to Willie Monroe Jr. in 2014 and to John Thompson in 2015. But still, the fact that he lost to those guys tells you he's a huge underdog against Charlo. And I think Jamal is looking to make a statement. And if Jamal Charlo is going to knock you out, he's probably going to do it early. Of his 21 knockouts, 19 are in the first five rounds. I could see Charlo coming out a little overexcited at the start in front of his hometown fans, making some mistakes, rushing a bit. You you talked about that when I asked you the question about whether the hometown thing could affect him. I, I could definitely see a scenario like that where Adams has a little success while, while Jamal is just a little too fired up at the beginning. But I think once Charlo settles down, I don't expect that Adams can handle his power. I'm going with Jamal Charlo, KO4. Um, there's a lot to like about Brandon Adams. I, I hadn't really paid him much heed at all until he got mentioned as a possibility for fighting Gennady Golovkin and then then this fight. Um, 
Uh, and yeah, look, there's lots to like about him. Like I said, he he seems to be constantly in good shape. He has 100% effort. He's an exciting fighter to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's strong as a bull, and and as you said, you know, he can, he can certainly fight. Um, but there are levels in this sport, and and this is what you sort of talked about. Yeah, he may very well be better than the guy who who lost to Willie Monroe and John Thompson. But you know, Monroe and Thompson, um, they're no disrespect to them. It would be wonderful to be a B-level professional prize fighter. But they're B-level professional prize fighters. Yeah. And Jamal Charlo is not a B-level professional prize fighter. Um, one of the real advantages, disadvantages, excuse me, that Adams has here, um, one of the things he has to really work for is is his height. He's, I think he's only like 5'8 or something. Um, right. And believe me, there's nothing wrong with being 5'8". <laughs> um but but you know at the at the middleweight division in particular like you're putting yourself like at you're at a disadvantage there often that means he has got to work really really hard to try to get inside and that's what he wasn't able to do uh, at all against Monroe and that's how he got caught against Thompson trying to get in and do that um, it was hard for him to get inside those guys' reaches and I just don't see him being able to do it against Charlo he's just he's big he's strong he's fast he's just too good. For Brandon Adams, um, you know, Charlo didn't want to talk about how good his uppercut is when I when we asked him that question, right. and he understandably wanted to focus on everything else that goes into it. But I think that's going to be a key punch for him yeah. when you're a slightly taller guy up against the shorter guy who's trying to rush in. Boy, it's good to have a good uppercut, and I think we're going to see that in action. Um, I think he might put him down a couple of times. Like yourself, I do think Adams is going to give. Not necessarily a round-winning account of himself early on, but a brave accounting of himself early on. Um, and, and with the prospect of Charlo perhaps being sloppy. But Charlo's going to start dialing it in. And I think probably there's going to be a couple of rounds where we're thinking, oh, okay, this could be stopped anytime soon before it is finally stopped. Charlo decking him, I think, for the last time in the sixth round and stopping him. All right. So massive disagreement. <laughs> By our standards, yes. I will say now, I do not think that it will be the shortest fight of the night. Um, that will be the co-main. Um, I think Atu is out of his depth here. Um, look, as you mentioned earlier, he's an undefeated streak, uh, but that isn't even against good European opposition. That's just mid-level quality opposition, even on that stage. Um, we talked earlier about whether Jamal Charlo might be affected by the stage. He won't, but I think there might be a possibility that for entirely different reasons, Atu will... Um, I think it'll be e- affected even more by the fists of Ericsson Lubin. I don't think this is going to be close. I think Lubin's got the wind in his sails after that win against Ishe Smith. As we talked about, he knows he needs to get the win here. He's not going to be bothered by anything that Atu throws back at him. Um, I'm going to go for Ericsson Lubin winning in a dominant third round victory here. Okay, yeah, Atu's record is mostly built against uh, female pop singing Uber drivers from Iceland, I believe. <laughs> I think that's most of his. Uh, so that's the, the same as the Tijuana taxi cab driver insult, I think, something <laughs> like right. that. Um, I'll say this for Atu is that he's only been stopped once among his six losses, um, which I guess could give me pause before confidently picking Lubin by quick knockout, um, but it doesn't really give me much pause. And I'm, I'm even going to do you one better. I'm saying Lubin KO2. Uh, the, these, are the, these are the kind of fighters he feasts on. I expect him to put on a show and overwhelm a two who just isn't anywhere near Lubin's talent level. Lubin may or may not be extremely chinny. You know, there, there were gym rumors before his loss to Jamel Charlo, and then he lost to Charlo in the first round. He will have to ch- prove his chin at some point. I don't think Atu is the guy to test it, though. All right, so and I'm up first for the toughest pick on the card, Eduardo Ramirez versus Claudio Marrero. 
The consistency issues for Ramirez worry me. Marrero is too good to get away with sleepwalking through the occasional round against him. I think this is going to be a really interesting fight. Ramirez will outbox Marrero in spots. Marrero will try to make a real fight of it. I think it's going to be close and fun. Two southpaws, who I think match up well stylistically. But I like Marrero. Uh, And as slick as Ramirez is, as good as he can be defensively, and he's never been stopped, I think Marrero is going to catch him at some point in the later rounds. Maybe this is an upset pick, maybe not. I'm saying Marrero KO10 in a really engaging, competitive fight. So look, many is the time I have accused you of looking at my notes before you make a pick (laughs) that I echo. But you know what? This isn't one of them. I'm going to be completely honest here. I'm not going to bluff my way through this. I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you straight up now at the front. I have absolutely no idea who wins this one. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I feel like inadequately uh, knowledgeable about either guy. And given that I just flew back from Iceland a few hours ago and boy, are my arms tired. Um, I, I just don't feel like I've done enough research here. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I could bluff this and I could come out with all kinds of things, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, I'm going to make a tactical selection here. Okay. Which is what I'm going to do. Sometimes it's worth making a flyer on a fight and you're not sure about it, thinking this will get me a few points advantage. But that's not what I'm going to do here. I'm going to pick exactly what you picked because I'm not going to lose any ground on this fight. God, you're such a wuss. But you know what? I think it's right to pull back the curtain and show this is what the wizard looks like. (laughs) There are times where I'll bluff my way through it, but this isn't one of them. I have no idea. I have no idea. And I'm not going to lose ground on this one. I am not going to fall short. because of that. <laughs> I, I appreciate your honesty. I definitely thought you were headed toward in that all of that buildup toward going with something very opposite to my oh, pick. Gosh, seeing, this, no. seeing this as your opportunity to make up a few points, maybe. But uh, no. All right. You played it uh, extremely conservatively. Yep. I'm playing the long game, Eric. <laughs> okay. Well, the game is not that long. We're, we're halfway through the year. That's all right. Okay. You're just where I want you. <laughs> Do you? Sure, let's say yes. Um, All right, well, uh, there are not too many major fights to preview this weekend, but there are a few solid ones worth mentioning. Uh, On Friday, June 28th on ESPN, uh, I really like this, Richard Comey, a possible future Vasily Lomachenko opponent, was actually considered for a past Lomachenko opponent until injury got in the way. Uh, He takes on veteran Ray Beltran in Temecula, California. I, I do like that fight. And on Saturday on DAZN from the Dunkin' Donut Center in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm, <laughs> I um, was just thinking mm, donuts in, in Homer voice as you said. Yeah. <laughs> Is it still Dunkin' Donut Center? Because haven't they rebranded themselves? Yeah, maybe. I we believe could, they're rebranding could, themselves could. as Just Dunkin'. Oh, okay. So yeah, I, you're, I thought you were saying maybe the arena had rebranded itself, but okay, you're just saying it's the the Duncan Center, not the. I, I didn't even know about I don't know. that rebrand. I have no idea. I just thought maybe they haven't actually done the rebrand yet. So I don't know. It's it's quite it's. <laughs> it's taking place um, in Providence at an arena there. We know that exactly. Much. It's in yes. Providence, exactly yes. in alleged state Rhode Island. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've been there. State. It's a state. Teeny tiny little state. Uh, uh, undefeated. Middleweight belt holder Demetrius Andrade faces Maciej-Chilensky. Um, oh, I really like that fight, too. And mm-hmm. uh, there are also heavyweights in action. Joseph Parker, the only man to defeat Andy Ruiz. And boy, what a notch in his belt that is now, uh, yep. taking on Alex Leopai. Uh, what stands out to you among those bouts then, Eric? Uh, so we talked about uh, Andrade-Chilensky when it was first signed. Not sure I have a whole lot more to say other than it's a solid fight. Uh, 
I'd love to see Andrade really tested, but Zelensky's narrow escape against Gabe Rosado has me guessing he's not quite the guy to do it. Yeah. But I, I'm still I'm still interested in this fight. Uh, as for Parker, what you alluded to there with the Andy Ruiz thing that that's just a great marketing device for him now. Yeah, hey, this guy everybody had kind of given up on and lost yeah. interest in. Well, he's the only man to defeat the fat guy who knocked out Anthony Joshua. So it's a, it's a good marketing hook for him. The fight is meh. Uh, Parker was supposed to face Eric Molina. The contract wasn't getting finalized for whatever reason, so they switched to Alex Leopai, which is a pretty lateral move, I would say. Um, of those three fights that, that you just mentioned there, I'd say this is the least interesting one. Uh, but then Comey and Beltran uh, on ESPN, very solid ESPN kind of fight. Uh, yeah. I think, uh, no promises, but I think that's one that I'll try to watch live rather than just waiting, reading about it the next morning and deciding after the fact if it's worth it. Um, but yeah, I, I look at this fight as, you know, one of these days Beltran is going to stop being a legit test of top contenders, but he isn't there yet. So uh, until until he stops being that test, this is a, a decent fight on paper. Yeah, agreed. Um so uh, a few minutes ago, I mentioned that we each scored uh, two points in our picks competition last week. Uh, so uh, let's talk about the fight in which we scored those points. Um, headlining a Showbox triple header on Friday, uh, junior middleweight beanpole Sebastian Fondura uh, dominated Hector Cepeda from the start until Cepeda's veteran trainer Romulo Kirate warning him after both the second and third rounds that he was going to stop the fight if he didn't start following the game plan and getting anything done. And indeed, at the end of round four, he proved good to his word. Uh, mm. Karate, somewhat to the surprise, actually considerably to the surprise, <laughs> yeah. I think it's fair to say, of referee Mark Nelson, stopped the fight. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a referee check four or five times. <laughs> yeah. but wait, Are you sure? This <laughs> it, sure? Here, this is what no you want to do. Let me understand. There's two words here. No one will ask. Right. Like, get this right, right? <laughs> Final um, answer? Yeah, did a little of that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So uh, let's check in on your levels of sadism this week, Eric. And spoiler alert, it won't be for the last time. <laughs> um, did Karate do the right thing? Do you have any idea what the game plan might have been? <laughs> Zabeda wasn't following. I don't know what the game plan was, but I will say this. It struck me during this fight how tough it must be to prepare for fighting oh, Fundora. Yeah. I mean, what six foot six inch sparring partners are you going to find? Heavyweights, maybe, but you don't really want a heavyweight punching back at you if you're a junior middleweight. Your trainer can stand on a step stool just so you could practice <laughs> punching up, but he can't move around. So that's not really the best simulation. Like sticks to his arms or something. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Train you, you know, hold the pads while standing on stilts. I don't know. Um, I said before the fight that the obvious game plan for Zepeda should involve serious body punching. But you know what? It struck me watching this fight that Fundora's ridiculously long arms, which he tends to keep low, they cover yep. up his body really well. His body is not such an easy target to find. Um, back to your question about the stoppage. It didn't really seem the fight needed to be stopped. You know, Zepeda wasn't getting hurt. But he also was not competitive at all. I don't think there was even a 1% chance he was going to find a way to win. So I can't get too upset about the stoppage. Curarte protected his fighter. And, you know, it does leave me feeling like maybe I don't need to see Zapata as an opponent on right. US TV again. And I guess that's kind of the calculus for the trainer there. Uh, we take a bad loss that hurts our future attractiveness, but we don't suffer any real physical damage. If I was a paying customer, 
maybe I'd feel like Karate prevented right. me from getting my full money's worth. But as a guy just watching on TV, I, I wasn't upset by the stoppage. Yeah, I mean, my only thought with that was having seen four rounds of that, I don't know that we needed to see another six, even if you were a paying customer. I don't know that it would have right. been any more exciting. Uh, and it, and I, and I think it's different when a corner does a stop, makes a stoppage early as opposed to referee, given that his whole right. job is to just protect his fighter. And you're supposed to know your guy. And it, I'm guessing he saw that not only was he not following the game plan, but he was not going to. Yeah, and no. It, right. He was just going to follow him around there and just get hit. And really, what was the point? Yeah, so. th- this this did seem like a case of a trainer knowing his guy, knowing knowing more than we did uh, about him. Uh, I the only reason for me to really be upset about it is that I had the KO five pick that he could could have waited that's, another that's <laughs> waited right. till the middle of the next round and then do it. But oh well. <laughs> yes, that's right. it. Does make you wonder, given that he was starting to say that after the second round, whether they, you know, didn't exactly go there with great expectations right. of victory. I don't right. know. Um, Anyway, that sort of takes away from the winner a little bit. So we talked a lot about Fundora beforehand and having, you know, seen him again in action here. How impressed were you with him? And and do you think he's close to fighting contenders? How impressed was I with him? There's certainly nothing not to be impressed about. Uh, He's he's a he's a tough puzzle to solve. He comes to fight. And he is the undisputed champion of smiling his way through a prize fight. We, we, we've talked about certain guys who are always relaxed in the ring, but very few smile as much as Fundora. He was even laughing in his corner between rounds at one point. Uh, that's unique. I'm, I'm down with that. Not that. Not that this is a guy who needed something to set him apart. He's already the six foot six junior middleweight. Um, but this is one more thing that uh, does help set him apart. Um, I think he's going to at least be a contender. Uh, you know, he's not just a physical freak. He can fight. This isn't Nikolai Valuev, uh, where his unusual right. size is pretty much all he has going for him. Fondora is a fighter. He has skills. He's enjoyable to watch. But the question about how far away he is from fighting contenders, he's only 21. He's still growing into whatever his body is going to be. <laughs> uh, um, I, th- there was a, a note that he says he might not be done growing height-wise. Uh, oh, mercy. I, so, I mean, there is just no rush at all with this guy. Yeah. I say stay at this level, fellow prospects, maybe some faded veteran gatekeepers for another year or so. Fight every two months if you can. Uh, and then, you know, maybe a year from now when he's like 18 and 0, step up to a top 20-ish contender. Fundor strikes me as a guy that we will enjoy watching even against mediocre opposition. Um, He's a guy who can make a good showbox headliner for a little while. There's no rush to seriously test him yet. Just let him keep facing different styles and building a following. Yeah, no, that's that's excellent. I, I that's really good an analysis, and I like the idea of of keeping him busy, mm-hmm. especially while he's just walking through these guys. Uh, right, and and, I mean, and you get and you got to keep him in the gym because clearly he's going to get fat if you don't keep him active. Look yeah, at this guy. I mean, yeah, that's what I, that's what I was thinking. I mean, he was just like, so slobby there with that, you know. <laughs> I mean, one of the thoughts, that, I mean, even as he was looking really, I thought, quite impressive, and like you said, tremendously relaxed, mm-hmm. um, was the word that came to mind, actually, at one point watching it was, I think it was the word that you used when we were talking with Gordon Hall, it's, it's just kind of weird watching yep, him. Yep. But yeah, it's just nothing quite like him. But no, I'm really intrigued to see how he goes, mm-hmm. before he goes. Um, all right, two other fights on the card. Uh, both went the eight-round distance. One fight was close. Yes, Solano defeating Elias Arojo by a one-point split decision. 
A knockdown in the fourth round making the difference. Uh, the other fight, not so close despite going the distance. Michelle Rivera dropping Rene Tejas-Giron in the closing minutes of round eight to put an exclamation point on a lopsided unanimous decision win. So what stood out to you in these two fights? Want to see any of these guys again? Uh, well, first of all, the highlight of the undercard was clearly the on-screen advertisement for Showtime ah, Boxing with that. Raskin and Mulvaney. Yeah, we've we've made it, Kieran. We're, we're not lions, but we are legit in terms of uh, Showtime talent, I think. Big moment for us. Uh, as for as for the fights and fighters, uh, if we must stop talking about ourselves for a moment, um, I'm happy to see any and all of these four fighters again. Uh, two of them will have to come back as opponents, but still, they all acquitted themselves well. Hirone was overmatched, but game. Rivera has skills. The fight was nothing special. Not a ton to say about him uh, just yet. The Solano Orojo fight was very good, uh, and we'll now take a brief detour into Raskin's betting corner as I brag about a winning bet that I made um, for, for some reason, <laughs> you can tune out for a minute if you want to, Karen. I, I sense that tone in your voice um, for, for some reason, Solano was a three to one underdog at the legal online sports books for this one. I think the odds makers screwed up. Like they just didn't know which guy was the legit prospect and which guy was the late sub opponent. You know, every now and then you can find this with a niche sport that, you know, if you follow the sport closely, you might know more than the bookmakers. That never happens with NFL or NBA, but boxing every now and then you can find a line that's way Mm -hmm. out of whack. So I made a few bucks off Solano who I would have expected to be about a minus 200 favorite. Uh, instead, he was a plus 300 underdog. So I jumped on that. Uh, it was a very close fight. I barely, barely ended up with the win there. But uh, good fight. Could have gone either way. Uh, I thought four rounds to four with the extra point for the knockdown was the right score. Araujo is a pain-in-the-ass pressure fighter. And Solano is a skilled and sharp enough puncher to have eked by him. But bring them all back. Everyone on this card except Hector Zepeda earned another invite, in my opinion. All right, there were other fights over the weekend, including a competing card on Friday night opposite the Showbox triple header. The headliner there was Andrew Cancio's repeat victory over Alberto Machado. Cancio had scored an upset seventh-round stoppage via body shots the first time they fought. In the rematch, he did it even more quickly, landing a left hook to the body in the third round that Machado couldn't quite recover from before the count of 10. And really, Machado's legs were gone in round two, which is quite early in the fight for that to happen. Kieran, can Machado bounce back from these back-to-back defeats? Uh, and and who would you ideally like to see Cancio tangle with now at 130 pounds? So I was watching this. I was thinking, if you're the extremely optimistic glass, not just half full, but almost full member of Machado's camp, you maybe try to convince yourself that this is a Marco Antonio Barrera Jr. Jones situation mm. here. And right. uh, Andrew, Andrew Cancio is Machado's Jr. Jones. Terrible st- terrible matchup for him. Um, okay, had a pair of fights that absolutely sucked for your guy. They were setbacks. We regroup. We move on. In, in, in Machado's case, move up in weight. Fight some different guys. Rebuild at 135. But... You know, I mean, you already touched on it. There are some very worrying signs here, um, and more so in the rematch than, than in the first fight. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, I thought that Machado, you know, pretty decent until he didn't. But the problem was that that was just a round and a half. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and I don't want to diminish what Andrew Cancio does as a fighter because it's hugely effective, clearly, in a nightmare to fight. He's obviously a strong guy, high output. Heavy punches, lands to body and heads, basically indefatigable. Yeah, it's a nightmare to fight. But at the same time, 
I didn't see anything substantially different than what he did in the first fight. So you suffer your first professional loss, and and surely the first thing you're thinking is, well, okay, we've got to try our best to make sure that he doesn't land that left hand, and especially that left hand to the body. And he was getting cracked with it all the time, Machado. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, as you mentioned, he, he started wilting very, very early on. So uh, Machado has some serious work to do here. I think this raises some definite question marks. Uh, he needs to go away, drop back down a level, rebuild himself. Um, but I w- the lack of adaptability there, as well as the apparent lack of resilience, were, were a concern, I, I think. Um, as for Cancio, well, there, as there have been for quite some years now, there are plenty of good and interesting options at, at 130. I think in order to make some of the best ones, he's going to have to go outside Golden Boy, who, who promote him. Um, see him against Javante. That would be yeah. interesting. Yeah. A slickster against the sort of brawler. Um, uh, but you know what I'd really like to see? And again, it would require cross-promotional uh, work. Uh, I think it would just be a fantastic fight. It's him and Miguel Burchell. God, mm. I want to see that fight. Yeah, what an all-action fight that would be. And, and and I think what a lot of sense it might be This if for these two guys, the promotions to work together and kind of make this happen. Um, you know, a real upside for, for both men and both companies. But I kind of suspect given various broadcasts and streaming alliances, that the most likely big-name matchup for him might be Tevin Farmer. Um, And I think that would be relatively easy to make. That would be well worthy of watching. Farmer would probably enter the favorite. Um, Mm -hmm. But Cancio's really punched himself into contention. Those were two impressive wins um, against Machado, who was looking at his best going into those two fights. So... um, The co-feature of that card uh, was probably the fight of the weekend at 108 pounds uh not the fight of the weekend at 108 pounds <laughs> it was the that fight also of, fight of the weekend which happened to be at 108 pounds uh elvin soto scoring a mild upset of angel tito acosta uh, another miguel Cotto fighter uh didn't wasn't a good night for my man crush um <laughs> but uh, it was a terrific fight marred i suspect you will feel by a controversial stoppage in round 12 i have a feeling we're entering the angry eric phase of the podcast <laughs> uh referee thomas taylor stepping in right in the final round there with acosta against the ropes i uh, i suspect you have thoughts as a matter of fact i do uh this stoppage sucked i hated it uh, acosta was leading in the fight by scores of 105, 103, 106, 102, and 107, 101, which that last one was maybe a little wide. It was a closer fight than that. But still, he was ahead. It was the 12th round. He got legit hurt by a sweet Mm -hmm. left hand in an exchange, and he froze. And like three seconds later, without a big follow-up shot having landed, Acosta didn't go down, wasn't necessarily close to going down. Taylor stopped it. He panicked and blew it in my opinion yeah. in that situation you just have to give a fighter a longer leash and give him a little bit of a chance to recover and fight back imagine if the ref had stopped mayweather mosley in round two when floyd was hurt and teetering and trying to hold because i think that's where uh, acosta was uh, except he only had about two and a half minutes of the fight left to navigate so this uh, to me is, is a pretty indefensible stoppage and i i don't want to hear that Taylor saw something in Acosta's eyes because he was up close. I'm not buying that with this one. I I think he blew it, plain and simple. And it was a really good fight. Who knows how it would have ended if allowed to play out to its proper conclusion. There has to be a rematch. Uh, And I I just want to say, 
maybe Taylor had a bad night or a bad moment. I'm not up here screaming that he shouldn't get any more assignments. This was one incident. So I just I'm not attacking him. I am attacking the job that he did here. Yeah. And what was really strange was that earlier in the fight, there had been some dramatic ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't as if this was the first time either guy was hurt. Right. In the fight. And he he done well to let it go earlier um, and let the fight go on. It just seemed it was really and it wasn't as if we'd had several rounds of, of Acosta in progressive decline. Right. And like, boy, Thomas Taylor needs to look for an opportunity to stop that. It wasn't any of that. Yes, like you said, he was hurt. And yes, it was a terrific punch. But Acosta had already shown that he could recover from that. So uh, I... I agree with you. I thought that was, a, at best, a very strange stoppage. But, because we're not finished with the angry Eric hour yet, <laughs> we have to mention that it may not well have been the most controversial stoppage of the weekend. Uh, on Fox on Sunday night, Guillermo Rigondeaux defeated Julio Seja by eighth-round TKO in a fight that, most of the way, was notable for the way that Rigo was, in fact, standing in the pocket and getting hit and making for a very un like action fight. I mocked last week you I did yes the prediction that this would be an exciting fight but for once he came up with the goods um but in the end it was notable for referee russell Moore's decision to halt it uh all right just put this ball on this tee here um <laughs> what did you think of this stoppage and even though he got the win is this a sign the way that he fought that rigando may very well be in decline now so i'll answer that second question first it's not just that Rigo stood in the pocket, uh, he can claim that was a conscious decision, that he wanted to be more exciting, he wanted to put on a show, etc. It's the fact that he got hit clean a yeah. lot. The Rigo that we know never got hit that much by a fighter on Seha's level. It sure seems like his legs and his reflexes are going. Hey, the guy had 475 amateur fights. He's 38 years <laughs> old. Bully. You know, we, we can't be surprised if indeed he isn't what he used to be. But He's 38 it, Cuban years old. Right. So what's that uh, translate into in uh, non-Cuban years? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, Luis Ortiz is actually probably 72. <laughs> right. So. so carry the one. <laughs> so 38 plus. There we go. 38 plus. I agree with that. Um. As for the stoppage, yeah, it was horrendous. Uh, Rigo cracked Seha with a big left hand, knocked him down, but it was with like half a second to go in the round. Uh, Seha got up. He was definitely hurt, but the round was over. He, he held up his hands, and the ref got to eight and didn't take a long look or, or ask him to walk to one side or the yeah. other. He just waved it right off. There's no need to rush there. Uh, you have to yeah. have some awareness of the situation that... Uh, Seha is in the fight. In, in this case, he was ahead on all three cards through seven, although you don't know that, but you know at least it's competitive. Uh, the round is over. You can take your time figuring out if he's okay to continue. I will say I think this one bothered me maybe a tiny bit less than the, the Soto Acosta stoppage. But still, Russell Mora didn't have to make that spur-of-the-moment decision, and it could look a little fishy. If, if you were a ref... And Rigo was the house fighter, the A-side, mm. and you went into the fight having been encouraged to make sure Rigo wins. If, 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 I'm, you know, I'm not making any accusations here, but if that was the hypothetical situation, you might stop the fight in this way the first chance you got instead of giving Seha a chance to recover. I'm not saying that's what happened, but I have heard wackier conspiracy theories in my yeah. time. 
Yeah, it says something when Captain Kumbaya here agrees with you twice in terms of... Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe you're really uh, as sadistic as you've occur- uh, accused me of being. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's sort of rubbing off on me or something. Um, but no, I mean, it's a fact. And also added to that, it wasn't as if, as we talked about, Rigondeau was looking completely invulnerable himself. So mm-hmm. this wasn't one of those situations where you think, oh, there's no way Seha could possibly get back into this fight. Uh, no, it was, it was definitely very peculiar. As, as for the other part of that question... Yeah, look, it's worrying, I think, when late in their careers and their lives, boxers who sort of start start to lose their legs and their reflexes and, and you know, start getting hit more. It, it's, I think it's late in their career when defenses have, have slowed that a lot of damage can really get done. Um, I'm not at all certain that any that the, the long-term cost will be worth it to Rigondeau for the late career embrace he's finally going to earn from boxing fans if he keeps <laughs> up this style of fighting. Um, it doesn't, listen Guillermo, it doesn't have to be either stink out the joint boring or brain atrophying brawling. There are mid, <laughs> There's a middle ground here. Lots right. of people have been doing it for a long time. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was un-Rigondeau-like. It, it was, I'm sure it was exciting for the fans there. I... Hope that this doesn't happen for a very long time for Guillermo Rigondeau, because that's not going to end up well. Yeah, R- Rigo, listen to what Captain Kumbaya has to say. That's what right. he's talking about. Ah, damn straight. All right, uh, last fight to discuss here. Earlier in the podcast, we spoke to Jamal Charlo, in case you've forgotten, because that was a while back, and previewed his fight this Saturday night on Showtime. Well, as we already mentioned, his twin brother Jamel headlined Sunday's Fox card. Uh, Jamel was supposed to get his rematch against Tony Harrison. Harrison pulled out with an ankle injury, so instead Jorge Jota got the call on short notice. And it kind of went as expected. Charlo with two right-hand knockdowns in the third round, the second of them putting Kota down and out. Um, Jamal got to flash his power, score a highlight real KO. Any other takeaways really from this, do you think, Eric? Uh, it's a pretty long podcast so far, so uh, in the interest of brevity, no, not really. Uh, Ch- Charlo did what he was supposed to do. I'm glad Kota seems to be okay, since that was a really violent knockout. Yeah, especially um, that second knockdown coming right after that first yeah, one. Yeah, his eyes rolling back in his head on the canvas didn't look great, but uh, he got up and seemed to be okay a couple minutes later. Yeah, you know, he was supposed to get the Harrison rematch. Instead, Charlo was stuck with a keep-busy fight, and he kept busy. That's about all I have to say about it. There you go. We move along to our news segment, and we're actually somewhat light on news this week, which is probably not a bad thing, given the length of the show. Um, (laughs) We could, I suppose, talk about Errol Spence versus Sean Porter, but all we know is that sources say it's almost finalized. There's no date, no further details, no official announcement. So I think we can wait for another show to to get into that. The only news worth Uh, Diving into is some bad news. Claressa Shields suffered a knee injury during training, so her August 17th fight in Flint, Michigan against Ivana Habazin has been postponed to, quote, this fall. That's all that we know so far. What's your level of bummedness over this, Kieran? (laughs) Sigh. Um... I mean, I think that, you know, we have a little bit of a light schedule coming up um, and it's that much lighter as a result. Um, But as you mentioned, look, this fight still appears likely to go ahead. There's no reason to believe it isn't. Um, And it's far more important for for Shields to heal up uh, Mm -hmm. with everything that she's she's going for and everything that's at stake for her. She doesn't want to go into this with uh, a slightly bum knee. So, you know what? We get an October Claressa Shields fight, perhaps, that we weren't expecting, even if we not going to get the august one we were expecting so there you go all righty then um let's wrap things up with one mailbag question uh mark 
Oh, who may or may not have made the podcast uh, mailbag before. I'm not sure. I think so. Um, I think he has maybe once. Okay. Uh, would the winner, good question, this, would the winner of Terence Crawford, Errol Spence, be the pound-for-pound pound king, he asks? Um, I should be clear before I answer that this is a, a hypothetical. We have no reason to yes. believe this fight is happening anytime too soon. Definitely not this year, since, uh, as noted, Spence Porter is probably coming in the fall, according to sources. But if it happens, say, next spring, just as a hypothetical, and Spence has beaten Porter under this scenario, we assume Lomachenko has kept winning in the meantime, but we also assume he hasn't faced any more top-tier opponents. Yeah, I I think if the Crawford-Spence winner wins cleanly, clearly, in at least somewhat impressive fashion. So in other words, it isn't a controversial decision or a head clash technical decision in the middle rounds or a fluky injury TKO. If one guy scores a real win, even if it's close, like, you know, 115-113, like a like a Shane Mosley versus Oscar De La Hoya first fight to trot out my second Shane Mosley-based example in the span of a few minutes, um, <laughs> then I would think the winner is almost certainly my pound-for-pound pound number one. For, for Crawford... To beat an Errol Spence, considering I only have Crawford a tiny bit behind Lomachenko in my mind right. right now, and a lot of that is because Crawford doesn't have a signature win yet, this would certainly be enough for him to leapfrog Loma. For Spence, maybe it's a little less clear. His resume is still kind of thin. He'd be beating another slightly smaller guy who moved up, but you beat Terrence Crawford. After dominating Mikey Garcia and stopping Kel Brook and under this hypothetical having beaten Sean Porter too, yeah, I, I think that's plenty. So if we have a clear and deserving winner, Crawford Spence would almost certainly crown a pound-for-pound pound king for me. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And like you said, look, it is one that seems destined to remain hypothetical, at least for now. Um, and yeah, it, it, if it, it depends... The answer to the question somewhat depends, as you touched on, when it happens, if it happens, and of course, what else has happened in the interim. Uh, I think it would arguably be a bigger win for either man right now than Lomachenko has yet had. But if it happened in a couple of years, maybe Lomachenko has done something else in the interim to pull away from the pack. But in a strange parallel universe in which it happens next for both men, and were Lomachenko to have stayed inactive or, you know, not for, uh, you know, another similar level of opponent right yeah i think the winner would have an excellent case to be number one hot take time coming but that's especially because the winner of that fight would be terence crawford look Ooh. i want yeah you go look, i like it's it a fight it's a fight i want to see i feel bad we've been being denied the opportunity to see crawford not only against spence but against keith thurman and sean porter not because I think those are fights that might see him get bumped off, but because I think they're fights that would demonstrate just how good Terence Crawford is. And right now, as good as Errol Spence is, and I write him, rate him very highly, Terence Crawford is better. The only reason he isn't number one on my pound-for-pound pound, uh, right now is because Lamachenko is a visitor from Planet Orion Alpha 5. Um, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, Terence Crawford is already the best human being pound-for-pound pound on the planet. So there you go. Wow. Little bit of hot take career. Yeah, indeed. Very, very opinionated. I, I like it. I, I like you're, you're spitting some fire there. And uh, I do suspect, though, that Errol Spence might not uh, refer to you as Captain Kumbaya. I might not. also suspect that Errol Spence won't be coming on the podcast anytime soon. Um, not if he hears this. If, um, if, if he does, you'll lie and tell him that oh, you, you pick him. Yes, right. 
Good. Of course. Good. I'm glad yeah, we're on the same page. Teeth. No <laughs> hashtag no lions. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> All right, that will do it for another edition of the podcast. We will be back next week to share our post-fight thoughts on the Charlo Adams card and uh, update our status, indeed, as applicants for Lions Circle, which I think is just diminishing ever, ever further, <laughs> yep. the more that we talk. So we'll wrap it up. And until then, thanks very much for listening.